matchmaker. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles, which we think deserve more acclaim, and to which attention must be paid. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 to 2015, starting with number one and working down. And I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. So here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry, sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, I have two new albums to talk through, and Tim will make the choice for the subtitles albums list. Then, in part two, Tim will have two new movies to discuss, and I will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movies list. Sometimes I will have seen the movies, and sometimes Tim will have listened to the albums. But at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. And once we've finished these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with the new list we've collabor- collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is The Queen is Dead. Tim, I really thought about just kicking this one to you immediately since you're the Smith super fan of it, the two of us. I mean, I was prepared. <laughs> like, I wasn't <laughs> going to come up with a What do you want to say about parent. The Queen is Dead? Go ahead. Okay, so The Queen is Dead, I think, is frequently given, and not just, like, here on this list, but, like, when you look stuff up, it is frequently given as, like, the high points of the, the Smith's discography. Um, I think both of us have quibbles about that. I don't know that either one of us is... I think you even more than me have a have a hesitancy to suggest that this is their great accomplishment. Um, but I do think that their best song is on this album. Um, and I think that there are a lot of things about this album. When I think about the Smiths, um, I, I think about certain things here first. Did you want to jump in with, with your take? Which is a take I like a lot, by the way. I, I was just going to say, I, um, the further I get along... The more I think strange, or, um, oh god, I forgot the real title. Strange Ways Here We Come. Strange Ways Here We Come, okay. I kept forgetting a word, so this is a good start for me. Um, I think that's the best one, which is actually in line with what the band members say. Like, I think they asked Mar and Morrissey to rank, like, their favorite albums that they've worked on individually, and both of them, Strange Ways, is the only Smiths album that they included. I'm pretty sure at least Morrissey did that, which, you know, it's Morrissey, so take that with a grain Sounds of salt. Sounds like him. <laughs> or a mountain of salt, whatever you need. Um, but they seem to like that one more, and I just think that one is more consistent and more interesting throughout. That said, The Queen is Dead is very good. Um, I understand why it's so regularly offered as 
the best Smiths album and really the one that puts them in that sort of essential English band territory um, where where you think about that lineage of Beatles and Stones to Zeppelin and Sabbath and then, you know, who comes after that? Like the Smiths are a good choice and they're often put in there and probably forgetting someone in the middle. Um, But they are musically and especially lyrically this essential English band. Um, And now one of the greatest, even though during their career that was a bit more... Uh, it was a bit more rough going for them while they were actually existing um, for the like seven years or whatever that was. But but we'll talk about Strange Ways in a future episode, much to Tim's excitement, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I think that one's the best one, but I understand why The Queen is Dead is often held up as here's kind of their ultimate statement. Um, it does have pretty much everything we've come to expect from the Smiths and it does all of that at a high level. Um, I'm interested though. What do you, what do you say is the best Smith song? Oh, I'm, I'm very basic about this and I think it's, there's a light that will never go out. It's, I know it's, it's (laughs) not exciting. And I think you could make very good cases for, um, for other songs on this album actually being that best Smith song. Um, but there's, there are different flavors of the Smiths, I think, that all of us come to, to know and like, and there are, there are different versions of them that I think people are drawn to. So, like, I don't know, for The Queen is Dead, if you're, like, someone who likes the Smiths because they're funny or witty or they do kind of goofy stuff, then they have three relatively goofy little songs on this album between, frankly, Mr. Shankly, Vicar, and a tutu, and, uh... And cemetery gates, but you can't say cemetery gates. That's not allowed. Um, nope, cemetery gates. You must say. Where he also differently pronounces plagiarizes, which I always think is fun. Yeah, when he says plagiarize every single time, just like that's that's not how the letter G works. Um, but even even a line in the in the title track um, when someone is supposed to be saying to him. You cannot sing, and he responds, I know you should hear me play piano. It's just, it's a very good one-liner. And this is this is a, an album that has a number of those good one-liners that we associate with the Smiths. Um, it's got the full-on sad Smiths. Like, I don't know. If you were to tell me that I Know It's Over is the best Smiths song, I don't think I would disagree with that. Um, is that I, did you have a thought along those lines? I, I don't think it's the best song, but I do think it's the best illustration of that, I think, warranted stereotype of the Smiths, where it's like you get into your teenage years and you discover the Smiths and then you sit alone in your bedroom in the dark and like just let Morrissey sort of bathe you in feeling. Um, I know it's over is very good writing, but I think it's also sort of the ultimate illustration of that like bedroom angst band that the Smiths um, are. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, I think that's a very important lane to have as a band. Um, But that's definitely the saddest song on this album. I don't know if it's the saddest one they ever wrote, but like it's genuinely emotionally, I don't want to say profound, but like weighty in a good way. Um, 
I think my other thought with that sort of ties to other songs on the album as well that and generally to the Smiths career that like Johnny Mars the key. Mm-hmm. We've seen that as Morrissey has gone solo and Mar who does a number of wonderful guest spots and I think some producing and like he just kind of shows up and plays and does what he wants now which good for him. But they're just not the same apart. Um but it's really, I think, Marr that is the key to making the Smiths run, because as good as Morrissey can be as a writer and as interesting as his characters can be, whether they're uh, you know, deeply thought out characters or thinly veiled meta things, which we get a lot of on The Queen is Dead. My favorite example being, frankly, Mr. Shankly, which is just sort of an epic takedown of <laughs> one dude at Rough Trade Records who Morrissey was just done with. <laughs> um, <laughs> But anyway, Marr to me is always the key because as soon as Morrissey is close to the point of treacly or cloying, Marr swoops in with something interesting in the composition um, or some really nice guitar melody or guitar solo even and kind of brings everyone back out. And it's like, I mean, this is, I don't know what's the word I want here. Stupid and trivial in a way, but they really are a yin and yang. Like, without the two together, they just aren't the same, and the music isn't as good. I would say that out of the three, if they're not necessarily their three best singles, they are definitely three of my favorite singles between Still Ill, Nowhere Fast, and There Is A Light That Never Goes Out, which are not all on the same album. And if <laughs> if they were, that would be a... What a coup that would be. But <laughs> all three of those, there is a, there's a Johnny Marr hook that gets you into the song and that hook is like a really strong one that that's for whatever reason um like a nowhere fast it's it's a sort of aggressive uh kind of beat and then in there is a light it's more plaintive but like he starts you off he gets you in morrissey keeps you with the lyrics like it's it really is a a wonderful pairing and that was actually the third thing i had in mind for this album is like there are a number of songs like that here, which just have that that obvious interplay between the two that is, from a musical standpoint, why you would keep coming back to them. Yeah, my favorite example is Big Mouth Strikes Again, where Morrissey starts comparing himself to Joan of Arc, and it's like, oh God. Here we go! And, then, <laughs> and it's like, oh, here we go. And then Mar just comes in with this, like, like levitating guitar melody. Um, I, I don't want to call it a solo because it's part of the bridge really, but it, this thing just like flutters through space and takes you to a, a like it, 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 it breathes a lot of air into that song that Morrissey is on the cusp of just drowning out of it by comparing himself to Joan of Arc. And then <laughs> Morrissey's vocal lines in the chorus, weird use of, auto-tune or something close to it and like he just kind of starts babbling through it and like it's funny um and i don't mean that in a bad way but like that's a moment where the composition saves what other what was threatening to become the dower morrissey we know from the last 25 years (laughs) um i'm basic as well i think there's a light that never goes out is the best song here but my other question here before I sort of wrap this up and move it on, right? It's the Queen is Dead. This is always put near the top of 
lists like this. It's regularly considered the best Smiths album, which this is not the episode for me to fight with that. That's a later one. But it's really good. There's a lot of great songs here. The title track we haven't really mentioned, but I think is definitely the second best song on this album. And if you catch me on the right day, I might say it's the first one. Um, Actually based in a real instance of some guy breaking into the queen's chambers and they just chatted for a while and morrissey just takes that and runs with it and charles shows up at some point and between that and vicar and a 2-2 we get uh an interesting motif of cross-dressing through the whole album um i guess i'll say one more thing before i get back to the that there is a light um cemetery gate you mentioned and we made fun of it a little bit but i actually really like that one me too um, I think that's just, it's short, it's bouncy, it's, I, I, it's just fun, and I like the image, because I'm an English major, of right, just being in the cemetery and thinking about all these great poets, uh, Yeats, and Kate, Yeats and Keats are on your side, Wilde's on mine, which I think is, I don't know, of an album full of meta-references, that's the most ironic thing they ever put to tape. <laughs> um but I don't know. There, like that's Morrissey at his best to me. Like finding just those moments that are sort of off kilter. But it's like, well, we all think about mortality in that way. Like these these artists who mean so much to us. And he has the one line in there: "They were born and they lived and they died." And it's a very simple statement, but to me, it's like that's what makes his writing so vital. Often, he can kind of take those feelings that we all have and just put it like like cut through all the crap of it and like here's the thing like these artists that mean so much to you they were born they lived they died just like i will <laughs> and i and i like that that song as well as frankly mr shankly and i know it's over like they both have these like weird redirects and like that the part you were talking about in cemetery gates is like that um where like you think it's about one thing and then all of a sudden it turns into something else which is surprisingly tender or vulnerable um so in um in that song it starts off with this sort of like wry bouncy thing and then it turns into like you know write your own stuff live your own life everyone you know is is born and lives and then dies and that seems unfair somehow um and then it goes back to little meta references or frankly mr shankly goes from like being i hate this guy so much I want to be famous. I want everyone to know who I am, but I'm actually more interested in like doing charity work and I'm more fulfilled by that. Like there's, there are multiple songs that have a similar kind of moment that like make you listen a little harder and step back from it in a way that I just find very appealing. Yeah. I, just musically you get sort of the back row arena rock and kind of a great example of Smith's expressed and sort of general mission of like we don't like uh, electronics let's make dance music with the basics of a rock band um, you know the Queen is Dead as a track does that very well and it becomes that back row arena opener that they used so often uh, frankly Mr. Shankly has a very jaunty vibe to it um, There is a Light is obviously an incredible ballad in its own way um big mouth is its own like post-punk kind of thing really um cemetery gates has a bit of funk to it vicar and a tutu gets 
has kind of a country get down yes. vibe going on. <laughs> There's uh, like some hoop which is fun in, that in the one. course of the album. Like I would hate <laughs> it if they did that more, but like right in that spot on the album, it's like okay, I can dig this. Um, but I think it's a great range, and we owe that as good as Morrissey is as a writer. We owe that to Mar for those compositions and for bringing that music together. Um, but going all the way back to There's a Light That Never Goes Out, I was wondering if you have a choice for favorite lyric on the album and if it is the chorus to There Is a Light. And I may be basic enough to say that's it. <laughs> uh, it's close. Um, I know I'm a big sucker for Oh Mother, I Can Feel the Soil Falling Over My Head and I Know It's Over. Um, but definitely... Um, it's actually something from one of the the verses. I'm always in in there is a light. Um, the the line where where he's saying that it's their home and not my home, and I'm welcome no more. I'm always so interested in in Morrissey's like little. They're not hints precisely because I think you don't give hints for something someone already knows, but like. There are little like metaphorical moments about being gay in England in the 80s that I definitely appreciate him doing over and over again. And that's one of the ones that always stood out to me and just seems, again, I keep saying poignant, but that song is is sort of a, a poignant song. I mean, even the, the part I was referencing, there's two kind of halves to this chorus and they're similar but differently worded. Um, but the one I always think of is, and if a 10-ton truck kills the both of us to die by your side, well, the pleasure, the privilege is mine. Right, we're starting with this image of getting hit by a 10-ton truck, and if that kills the both of us. And it's another one of those, oh, God, what are you about to do? <laughs> and then like, it, it's, an, it's an emotion that has been expressed in countless songs that to die with you would be the best thing, like, this is Romeo and Juliet in a way, but just for, like putting in the line, well, the pleasure, the privilege is mine. I think is such an interesting way to go about that. Um, it's like courtly. Re- yeah. <laughs> um, so it's this at once bombastic and stereotypical and done a thousand times image, but Morrissey finds a way to write it that just, like, that becomes the one you remember, or to me, anyway. I like the opening of the song, too, just Take Me Out Tonight, where there's music and there's people and they're young and alive, and there's nothing profound happening there, but I just like that as, like, the opening mission statement of a song. Like, yeah, that's what any of us want, really. <laughs> um, okay, so The Smiths, The Queen Is Dead, great album, regularly acknowledged as such. Um, I'm not here to to diss on it really maybe and in a future honestly, episode but. if we talk about it much more everyone will be subjected to my morrissey impression and that's we're not we're not here yet so we should probably we'll, talk we'll, about we'll save that one so what's the category <laughs> we're working with today well we've we've tim and i both have been hitting on it as we've talked a little bit um or the second half of it anyway but the category i want to talk about today is reunion no so I want to talk about, in addition to the Smiths, two other bands that many, many, many people would love to see a reunion tour from, 
potentially even an album, but would love to see get back together, even if it's for 30 dates through the, the world, wherever. But it's not going to happen. Um, maybe it does someday. Maybe I'm wrong, but I would bet on these three just not getting back together at any point. And that starts with the Smiths because Morrissey pretty much and I don't need to I don't know if I need to say more but I th- there's more to that story right Mar and Morrissey get so much of the the credits both in terms of lines and money and, and royalties that I don't know that the whole band can ever really agree on what would happen if they got back together but they sort of faint it every couple of years. Like, there's, oh, maybe the Smiths, this will finally be the year, and they'll do all those festivals, and they'll, you know, just make a bunch of cash and then ride out in the sunset. But there's too much ego involved here. I don't, I don't think it's ever going to happen. Um, and all of them individually are weaker than when they are together. And we were talking about that with uh, Mar and Morrissey in particular, that they just complement each other so well. And that their strengths just enhance each other such that it becomes much greater. Uh, the sum becomes much greater than the parts. So we can think about a Smith's reunion all we want. I, I don't think there's any way it ever happens. But I don't know, Tim. Do you, Tim's shaking his head. So Nope, never. <laughs> just, um, know, so you, with that in mind. No, just never. <laughs> yeah. So with that in mind, I want to talk about two bands that are also, to my mind, never going to get back together, never going to do that reunion tour. Um, Or if they do, it will be an utter shock. And more than that, I want to think about albums that they release that show us why they're so vital and why they're so important to so many people and why kind of their absence rings so huge to so many. Um, kind of a unique space that they filled that no other band is really able to, at least not in the same way. Um, so these are bands that like their absence just looms large, and there's a reason we want them all to get back together. Um, it's not just for like the fun of a tour. It's because they're they're keying in on um, vital feelings and emotions and just um, things that people want out of music. So with that said, we're going to talk about The Talking Heads and R.E.M. So yeah, this is not the episode where I'm pulling out random artists. These are both big-time uh, big time acts. But let's start with The Talking Heads, who it bears mentioning all their... Yeah, I'm going to say it. All their best albums are before 1985. Um, so I'm not working with Remain in Light or Speaking in Tongues or Fear of Music here. But that's okay. We're going to talk about Little Creatures, which came out in 1985, and which I still think is a deeply funky and really fun album in its own right. Um, and if we... right, Nothing else is going to be Remain in Light, for example, so let's just dispel that notion right now. Um, but Little Creatures finds the band at kind of several cross, crossroads... They released Remain in Light in 1980, and that's sort of the end of the the band as a whole, working with Brian Eno, or at least as much as they did at that time. Byrne would still work with him um, on solo projects and such. And that's, right, the Talking Heads masterpiece. And, and any 
write-up of the 80s of rock of the talking heads that's the album it's like yeah that's the great one that's the one that will stand the test of time and that that's true um and then it's right they 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 released i think it's four albums in four years pretty much from the late 70s to 1980 and then remain in light is such a huge undertaking that like they need time to decompress it feels like and in 1983 they come out with speaking in tongues which has burning down the house and that becomes their first like legitimate hit. Um, there are a lot of songs we remember now. Life during wartime charted some, and like that got them some attention in '79. But burning down the house is really the first one that uh, sort of takes them to a new stratosphere um, in terms of popularity, in terms of when they tour, what sorts of venues that they're playing. Um, and it's also the album that's released right before Stop Making Sense in 1984, which is the famous um, Jonathan Dem, I think I have that right, uh, concert film that's, it's awesome. Everyone should go watch it. Like, it it's the talking heads at sort of the peak of their performative powers. Yes, Tim. <laughs> it's on Criterion Channel right this second, but by the time this episode gets released, it won't be on Criterion anymore. Oh no! <laughs> the timing of this is really tricky. I know it's not long, and it would be easy for people to squeeze in, but like, I, it it leaves at the end of August, and by the time it gets released, I don't think you can listen to this and watch this in the same time period. It just won't work. So maybe everyone pause this, go watch that, and then come back to us. <laughs> you, you, um, you have to be listening to this on August thirty first or something. I well, I'm pretty sure I've watched it on YouTube before in one of my rewatches, so I think you can still find okay. it out there. All right, I think um, that the last time I watched it was a while back, so I'm not sure where exactly you can find it anymore. Um, but I know I just have found it before. Anyway, great film, a great concert. It's everything that we've. I really kind of idolized about the talking heads in a way. Uh, it's David Byrne doing his totally a unique frontman uh, performativity, which by all accounts is not a performance at all. Like that's just him, um, which I always think is really interesting, but it's him jittering about, uh, you know, all those vocal squawks and howls and chants that really only he can hit or that only he can hit the first time anyway. Um, and backed by a very, I, I, I could not think of the right word for them as much as I tried, but just a very good band. Um, Chris France, Tina Weymouth, and Jerry Harrison are, much like the Smith, the stars just kind of aligned here. Like everything came together perfectly between these four people. Um, but this is also the tour where they were expanding to the point of a 10 piece. I think it was for much of the tour um, because of all of the African music influences in particular, um, the world music that Byrne is bringing in uh, to his kind of high art, esthete uh, form of writing. And then, France and Weymouth in particular, who before this had released an up or uh, an album as the Tom Tom Club, which is a good album. It's a lot of fun, and it shows that the, the importance of their R and B and their funk and pop sensibilities to the band, and how those ground burn in good ways, much like Mar grounds Morrissey in good ways. 
Um, but you get these incredible moments of musicality and of polyrhythms and of 10, 10 artists at once, um, just kind of taking you, wrapping you up and like, we're going to have a sonic journey now. So stop making sense is great. And that's where the band was at before little creatures, which comes out in 1985 then. So we have another sort of gap in there. Uh, release um that was unusual compared to their early career um and it little creatures is another kind of reset in a way um and it's interesting to me it's well known that at this point burn and weymouth in france who were married just hated each other um and the band was basically a burn tantrum away from dissolving at any point. And I think it did several times and they managed to bring him back in. And I say tantrum, like he's a genius writer and a genius musician, but it's also pretty clear that he's incredibly difficult to work with. Um, <laughs> which is part of why the last like 10 years is so interesting to me. Cause now he is this elder statesman role and like, he still tours, he's still writing. He released American utopia on Broadway. Like he's still doing really fun things. Um, and he's kind of been able to remold himself in a way, I think, that's clear of the uh, how much these people hated each other, except for Jerry Harrison, who just sort of seems to be like, all right, I'm going to come in and lay down my guitar lines and like, I'm here, I'm chill, everyone else can fight. Um, but the part that I was referencing initially that it's interesting to me, it confuses me, is that depending on whom you read, Little Creatures is either described as like, okay, this is where David Byrne finally took over, and this is basically a solo effort with a band behind it. Um, but I always hear it, and other people do as well, as Little Creatures, like you get some of that Tom Combs Club influence on it, that it's poppier than anything they had done before, um, that France and Weymouth maybe are driving the sound in kind of new ways. Um, certainly Byrne is still writing the lyrics um, and getting a lot of the songwriting credit, but to me this one always seemed poppier, that they met this big success with Burning Down the House um, and to slightly lesser degrees uh, Life During Wartime and Once in a Lifetime and these last few albums that they're going to release just become let's scale everything back we're not going to do the 10 piece thing anymore it's still going to be complicated complex music um but let's embrace pop a little bit um i don't know if you have a sense of this at all tim like that that's just an interesting critical argument to me um and again you can find people who say it one way or the other that like this is burn just he brings his own songs the band records that's basically all that's happening now it doesn't have the same cohesion as say remain in light um and then others who say, no, they, like, they embraced pop here. They went a different direction. Like, Tom Tom Club was successful. And this is sort of an indication that France and Weymouth can uh, keep the band changing in, in productive ways. So I asked you what you thought, and then I just ranted. But go ahead. <laughs> no, that's the, the Matt guarantee. <laughs> anyway. Um, no, I, I don't think I'd ever thought about it before. I don't know that I'd ever had the thought that was like, because I don't. I don't know the, the inner workings of, of bands all that well anyway, but when you say, when you say that that's like a thing that people have lobbied at this album, um, an album which I enjoy an awful lot, I, I can see it a little bit. Um, even if you just compare it to 
you know, like some of the the big tracks that they're best known for. It's just it just feels different. It's it's definitely a lot bouncier and doesn't feel nearly as experimental or or avant-garde in any kind of way. A lot of it is just like a lot more fun. Yeah. It's a lot more straightforward and I think right, this has always been a funky band, but I think this is a an album that like they really sort of lean into their funk capabilities. Not that they're like the world's greatest funk band. Like they're actual funk bands that could just run them into the dirt if they really wanted, but like bringing that to this art house rock that they're known for um there's still no one who really does that or who has done it nearly as well and that's sort of what i want to wrestle around with here uh, with little creatures i used to be one that said all right the first half of this album is the great part like the whole thing is good but like i used to think okay the first half that's the half I don't think I've mentioned this in an episode yet. I oftentimes think about albums and halves for better or worse. Wow. Like that's not always illuminating, but sometimes I think it can be really interesting because oftentimes with album construction, this goes back to when vinyl was the primary mode of music release. Like the first half is loaded with your singles with the more immediate stuff uh, or, or the standout things. And then the second half, you can often get a sense of, okay, well, where are they going to go next? Um, or it's filler, depending on how good the album is or isn't. So, right, thinking about it in halves does not always tell you something, and it's not a uh, clear measure of quality overall, but I like to think about it sometimes, and I think this is a good album for that. See, I knew you did that, but I, I realize now I should have, like, a month and a half ago suggested that you say that. But, but yes, this is... I will let you get back to it. It just This, this is a, a good album for that particular type of critique. I mean, honestly, there wasn't an album yet that, like, totally, like, there are other ones that we've talked about already that I can think about like that, but they didn't lend themselves as well to me mentioning this until now. Um, I think Little Creatures is great for this. So the first half has songs like um, And She Was, Lady Don't Mind, which I think are both wonderful, like, pop-funk singles. Lady Don't Mind in particular feels like the talking heads that we know and love. Um, and right, it brought down a peg, not in a bad way, but in a way of like, okay, we don't need 10 people to play this. Like we can return to the core four member piece uh, and just play these very uh, bouncy, vital, unique songs. Um, and the other one in particular that I want to mention from the f first half, which I'm using sort of roughly, honestly, uh, is Stay Up Late, he which <laughs> musically has always been just super fun to me. But just getting into what Byrne is writing about has always been a challenge and what he's writing about. And this is going to be the transition moment as we talk about the talking heads. So on Stay Up Late, he's writing about his new fascination with babies. Like, that's it. It's not a metaphor. It's his new fascination with babies. And there's a lot of baby speak thrown into this kind of babble. And it's something you would not expect from the talking heads before this point, because David Byrne is this uh, figure of angst, of existentialism, of he's writing us through the weirdness and the occasional joy, but also the deep anxiety of just being alive in the world. 
Um, this is a band with an album called More Songs About Buildings and Food. Like they're taking the basics of just everyday life and cutting through all the fluff, everything that's superfluous, and just getting to the core of like, this is why it's so anxious but often exciting to be alive in this world. And now he's writing a song about babies and his fascination with them. And it makes sense to some degree, like maybe that's a certain innocence that he wants to connect with. Um, But on the other hand, it's just jarring. And Tim kind of giggled when I mentioned this song. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts before I make the big shift here. (laughs) Song is so weird. Like it's, it's one of my two or three favorites on the album. Um, but it's just, it's just a deeply weird kind of song. Just the way he says, like, little fingers, little toes at one point. It's like, what are you, what? Um, and yet it's so captivating. Like, every time it comes on, I'm like, oh yeah, I think this song is weird. And then I just let it run and I end up at the end of it. It's like, oh, I listened to that one again. Like, I never skip it. But after Stay Up Late, which is a new mode of writing for Byrne, really, and I think is indicative of, right, this still sounds like the talking heads, but this is something different. This is poppier. Like, they're moving in a new direction. We get to the second half of the album, and really what I want to talk about here are the final three tracks. And I want to talk about them from the angle of this is why the talking heads are one of the greatest American rock bands ever, I don't know, maybe the greatest. I don't, I'm not, I'd, I'd have to think about that more. I'm not sure if I'm willing to lay that down on tape just yet. But the last three songs are uh, Walk It Down, Television Man, and Road to Nowhere. And I think in this trilogy, not in the sense that it's one story, although you can kind of read it that way, um, but just this trio of songs, I think we get a great sense of, yes, this is why the Talking Heads are essential. This is why they're great. This is what they do that no one else has been able to do quite as well or, or quite as prolifically. Um, so let's just kind of go in order. Walk it down. Waymouth here is the star to me. Like there, There's a, a liquid pop to her base that just stands out immediately. And it's not that she's you know, playing aggressive and like super complex funk slap bass lines, but just the sound that she's able to evoke out of fairly straightforward playing. Uh, I think that really stands out here and they move it up in the mix. And like, that's one of the first things you hear. Um, and I said, it does have this like very liquid kind of almost gelatinous quality to it. Like you can just hear it kind of moving along. Um, and that's taking you with it. And meanwhile, Chris France on the drums, is doing kind of a military march behind that. Um, it's like it's a very driving song that sort of like encases you with that bass line and then just walks you along with France's uh, drums. And it's reminiscent of Swamp, which was on Speaking in Tongues, I think, and is one of the best songs in um, Stop Making Sense, I think. Uh, like the performance for that one. That's the moment where Byrne puts on the giant gray suit and comes out. And like that one always hits very hard for me. Um, but just a few, right? We talk about Byrne, we talk about Morrissey, we have to talk about lyrics. So just a few from 
walk it down that stand out to me. And it's really in the juxtapositions here. So we have togetherness, a pause, ecstasy is what I need. And to me, it's always interesting, like, well, are those meant to be read together? Is it that we have togetherness, but I need ecstasy? Like, is togetherness itself ecstasy? Just the way Byrne builds a pause between those words, I think, makes it so interestingly open. And as we go on, other lines like, I can swim, but I should fly. I can laugh, but I should cry. And oh, to me, that feels especially pertinent in 2020. That, like, I could swim through all the shit. Or I can laugh at all the evil and the terror. But really, I should be crying. Really, I should be trying to fly and not drown. Um, so, you know, like we said about Morrissey, is taking kind of these simple emotions... Uh, or, or simple ideas that are done thousands and thousands of times and just finding a way to express them that like, oh yeah, like only he could do that or, or, or only that person could could make it so clear. Um, probably my favorite one from the song. What you see is what you get, but it sure ain't what we need. Um, I, there, there's not a wonderful openness to that like the other ones, I think, but that one's just, that's towards the end of the song. It's like... Okay, and I think that leads pretty well into Television Man, which, as the title suggests, is about relationship with television, uh, about the elimination of the space between the world of TV and the real world, so to speak, um, that the real world became a MTV sensation after this album is a hilarious coincidence to me. Um just what you know what is reality with tv like what's real what's fake uh and burns working through that and one of the opening lines is the world and it's repeated often the world comes crashing through my living room and that's another line that i just feel is too real right now um whether it's the tv whether it's your phone whether it's your computer twitter facebook whatever it is like the world just comes crashing at you and there's no separation anymore but what's really important to me on Television Man is the music here um, and Burns' affectations. So he starts again with sort of babbling. So we have, in a way, a callback to stay up late, where it's like, okay, well, he's going to keep doing this. But then about halfway through the song, there's a breakdown and he starts kind of babbling again, but that becomes a chant and becomes a call and response. And so in a way it's almost this like, and I think this recast stay up late. I mentioned that it could be a way to try and connect to innocence, but it's almost, and to their previous album, which is called speaking in tongues where like, is he trying to find this sort of primal connection that exists in emotive language, but not in the actual words that we use. Um, is that a way that we can commune and that exists outside of this television world? The instrumentation here, I think, is brilliant. Um, the way the song breaks down and then rebuilds um, both to the chants and then after again. Uh, great polyrhythms. Uh, you know, I mentioned his vocal affectations. There's a wonderful horn section and I think a sax solo in the middle of it. Uh, and it builds, there's some twinkly keyboard melodies that come in and it's like, it's putting you in a space shell and it's about to shoot you out. And like to this land of newness where we can finally connect togetherness is the ecstasy that I need. 
and then it feels like it's gonna achieve that liftoff finally at the end of the song like it's building there's going to be this incredible crescendo and hook and burn says that's how the story ends and the song just stops <laughs> and i think that's like it's frustrating because they have such momentum in that moment and it's such a great hook <clears throat> and then it just ends so like to me that's sort of frustrating in the way that like the ending to the sopranos is frustrating to people it's like what well, you were right there <laughs> but I think that's also important and most other bands are going to take that hook if they can achieve that and run with it. But talking heads realize, no, it needs to stop here. Um, and that's important to this, this final trio of songs, uh, especially as we get into the last one road to nowhere, which maybe it's just cause I've listened to it a bunch, but I feel like this is one of the more known talking head songs. Um, it was one of the singles, wasn't it? I think so, but like I don't have a good sense of how known this one still is. Um, I, I think it was in the time, and, and it definitely plays like a single. By which I mean, like it stands out in a good way. Um, I'm not sure, like if we ask people now, if they're going to be able to name this one as a Talking Heads song. But to me, it, it like it's one of my favorites. Like it's one I can pretty much always go back to and just put on and sort of vibe to. Uh, and I, I love thinking of it as kind of a coda to Television Man because the whole point of it is basically, it's all right. We're here together. We know where we're going, but we don't know where we've been. And it's kind of this uh, evocation of like, everything's terrible, but if we stick together, if we sing the song together, uh, one of the lines is like, you can sing the song with me or something to that effect. Um, like, that's the only way forward. Um, we're not going back. We can't go back. We're, we're on our way to this aimless future. Let's go. Let's walk together. Let's sing together. Like, that's all we can do. And it starts with very disaffected vocals, which is sort of weird in the Burn universe. He's, he's not usually one for subtlety. Um, and then as it goes, it becomes more and more anxious, more and more... Uh, aggressive we get into sort of those nervy howls into those ticks that he's known for um, and you really get a sense of like just these outbursts of living like I, I can be depressed I can be disaffected in one moment and then just raging in the next and then anxious the next um, and to me, this, this final trio of songs in particular really shows that that's what the Talking Heads was so marvelous at capturing. Um, on the one hand, they're able to bring in so many different genres, so many different types of musics, and make uh, this sort of art rock, funk, dance world music with polyrhythms that you're not going to hear in a lot of pop songs. Um, and just weave that all together in really cohesive and clear ways. Um, and, and there's not really another band that has done that or has been able to do that. And these are songs that tap into kind of the terror and the joy and the anxiety of living all at once. And that comes through in Burns lyrics, that comes through in his affectation, uh, in this quest for any togetherness or ecstasy that we might be able to find. And you hear that when the, the music really gets, really gets its momentum, really gets its feet under it. Um, and we have these moments of like 
all right, we're ready. We're all in this together. We're going. And then, you know, sometimes that pays off. Sometimes like the end of television, man, that just ends. And that's how life is. Um, sometimes that goes somewhere. Sometimes that doesn't. So little creatures overall, I think is a very good album to me now. Um, as I've listened to it more and more, those last three are what really speak to the vitality uh, and the kind of essentialness of the talking heads. And that's why so many people love them and why so many people want to see them back again, which is not going to happen. David Byrne is having a happy, successful solo life. He's still playing several of the the talking head songs. I don't think it's really resolvable between him and France and Weymouth in particular. But maybe it is someday. Maybe they come back, they want to do another uh, impressionistic tour and come up with a whole stage show, and they do that, and then they ride off. I think that's the only way it happens. I don't think we're getting another album from the Talking Heads, certainly. Um, But maybe they figure out a fun stage show, and it's like, if they can find that performative aspect to it, that's the only way I could see it happening. But I think bridges are burned here. And even if they did that, um, they'd have to do it without Jonathan Demme, because he's dead. Yeah, they'd have to find something. Maybe, maybe this is where Spike Jones comes in. That's not the same. <laughs> I know, but I'm trying to think of a director who's worked with music as much. Though. Scorsese. No, 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 no. Oh, true. <laughs> the last vault. Last um, vault. I mean, I guess it's harder when there's not any Robbie Robertson in Talking Heads, but yeah, who knows? Maybe if they give him a cameo. Um. <laughs> No, I just thought of it, though. This is where my dream comes true of David Byrne working with David Lynch. Oh, good. Okay. Well, <laughs> now I have something to hope for, so that's nice. So, maybe maybe in this hellscape of a world, that can happen someday and bring us all joy. <laughs> Anything you want to say about Little Creatures before I move to REM? I'm really glad you gave a lot of shine to the second half of that album. Um, I mean, I like the whole thing, but... Um, I know when I was listening to it again for this, uh, Television Man was the one that like really stood out to me. Like that was the one that I was like, something is happening here. Like it gives, it definitely, it feels like an event and it feels like there's something really special happening in the song, even though there are other songs that I would like sit there and listen to and, you know, in the, the new tradition of playing Mario Kart too, you know, (laughs) there are superior ones than Television Man, but it's, that one is the one that definitely interests me the most. Yeah, and I think, again, the first part of the album in particular, <clears throat> stuff like And She Was and Lady Don't Mind, like those are the singles, and those play great on pop and rock radio, and I don't mean that as a slight at all, um, but I think that's the band kind of finding a new direction uh, in a necessary and interesting way, but yeah, I, I like calling Television Man in particular, but I think kind of the end... It's like 15, 12, 15 minutes of this album, kind of an event. Like something is happening here. This is important. This is what the talking heads do that no one else can do as well. And that's why we want them back so much. R.E.M. release Out of Time in 1991 and Automatic for the People in uh, 1992. And they're a well-regarded act before this. Murmurs, their first album in 1983, I think it is. Uh, You have Life's Rich Pageant in 85, Document in 87, Green in 1988. Um, 
which is almost the album I talked about for this episode because that's my favorite REM album. Was that it? Was that the whole? Was that the whole rationale? Because I was going to push this a little bit if you didn't. If you didn't say something. No. What, wait. What are you going to push? Oh, I was just going to let people in in behind the scenes and know that I had. Um, I I listened to Green again for for this, and then we had like a midnight change. I think almost literally to to Monster, so I had to double back, but. I was just curious, like if those are if those are like similar for you on this particular theme, and and why Monster feels like the better one. So yeah, let's talk about that. I think Green fits the theme in that REM, the band, I don't think much likes Document, and Document's also the one with it's the end of the world as we know it. So that was sort of a. a a level up moment for them to speak like that's a single that achieves some success that as good as life rich, life's rich pageant is um and that didn't really have a single in the same way so like this is a band that's building credibility in this indie rock college rock scene and they're already very well regarded at this point um and document has some some success but the band feels kind of worn out with it uh, and green is where they start playing with different stuff um, and it, and I'll use this as a way into kind of how I want to talk about REM, which is everyone has an idea of an REM song. You can hear Stipe immediately. There's not a ton of instruments being used. And an REM song can come on, and I think pretty much everyone, as long as you're familiar with the sound, can be like, oh, yep, that's them. Um, they feel formulaic in a way, but they're anything but to me. And I think they're just... Uh, a, an incredible instance of working with just a few different people um, and a fairly stable set of tools and maintaining an identity while also being experimental at the same time, but not experimental in the way of like, this is not prog rock. They're never going to do that. It's going to feel like REM every time, but everything is slightly rearranged on each album. Um, so in terms of their album progression again, Green, I think, works because it's where they started playing with new tools uh, that would come out more on, on out of time and automatic for the people. Um, they're playing with keys and synths a bit more. They're playing with mandolins, which is going to be a big thing on Losing My Religion. Um they just kind of got tired of the same old setup and <laughs> there's different string instruments here. There's more keys. Um, and, and they're just playing around in ways that are fun for them. And I think that invigorate green in ways that they didn't necessarily feel that on document. So I think that is a good example of that kind of, okay, well we come into the REM album, it's going to feel like them, but everything's slightly shifted and that's what they do so well. Like it seems so simple, but it's so simple because they put so much work into it and because they're so good together. And the best analogy to them in a contemporary context, and I'm not the only person to say this, I'm not going to pretend this is novel, but is Spoon, where every album is just good. And it's good in a different way, but it's always them. And I think without R.E.M., we've lost a major band that can actually do that. Um. I just want to show some love to Green real quick, which has Pop Song 89, uh, Orange Crush, Turn You Inside Out, 
stand world leader pretend you are the everything this is just a great album and i love it everyone go listen to it but let me talk about monster before i get off track (laughs) um (laughs) but anyway after that we have out of time which i said has losing my religion we have automatic for the people which is really the fame moment for them um this is that one has everybody hurts it has man on the moon it's a very emotional and dour album but this is the moment where rem becomes stars uh, in that two album run in 91 and 92 and they take kind of a well-deserved break after that by their standards anyway which is two years and release monster in 1994 and it debuts at number one i'm pretty sure and it's also probably the most divisive rem album still some people will say it's among their favorites I love it. Other people will say, oh, that's that's terrible. That's trash. Like, what were they doing? Um, and they wanted to hear more of what was on Out of Time and Automatic for the People. Whereas those albums are slower. Um, they're relying on stuff like... They're relying on stuff like mandolin, like keyboard, like piano. Um, they're letting Stipe have more space um, and emote through it, really. Monster is muddy, it is blaring, it is good, loud guitar rock, and I think the story is that they wanted to kind of go back to that mode for them, um, and they wanted to reconnect with those instruments that they were tired of, like, seven years prior. Um, And Monster is an album that's very distorted and overlaid, and it's hard to tell what's happening in the mix at some points, but that's all purposeful. Uh, and I think it adds to the power of this album where they were taking on, uh, arena rock, garage rock, a little bit of like glam even, uh, and just making their own mold of it. And you hear this immediately, the opening hook on what's the frequency Kenneth, which I thought it, I don't think anyone's going to disagree that that's the single from this album. That like that's the most known song, um, but that that kicks in. Um, it's I think a mission statement to the rest of the album where we're going to get very echoey, buzzing, distorted, compressed um, riffs the whole time. Um, Star sixty nine is like the REM take on an actual punk song. Um, which, like, you can hear sort of in their song formulations that, like, punk is important to them, but Star 69 is kind of a, okay, let's let's actually try this. Um, and that's also the song where Stipe, I think it's like four or five layers of his vocals, and they're just echoing slightly after one another. So it's this, and lyrically it's a song about, uh, like, the narrator in that one is a conspiracy theorist, so, like, that echo lends to that as well, that, like, you're hearing all these voices all around you and like you're getting lost in that um <clears throat> that world really um king of comedy is a song about industry and consumption and capitalism and it's stipe giving a take on consumerism really uh and the song itself sounds like a, an assembly line that's breaking or like that's just wheezing along um, the drums on that are, they sound like gears clanking. They sound like machines just sort of barreling and marching forward. They sound very industrial. Um, 
Stipe is buried in a lot of that mix and it's kind of monotoning through it. Like he's coming over a loudspeaker. Like he's the boss that you hear this disembodied voice that's telling you to do things or telling you about things while you work. Um, and in general, the song just kind of wheezes forward. It's like industry on its last legs, but you also can't escape it. I, I mentioned a couple of his narrators, really, and I think Stipe's writing is at still a very high level here. Um, you know, he gets a lot of credit for those uh, 80s albums in particular. Um, but we have, so I mentioned in Star 69, we have kind of the conspiracy theorist narrator, um, we have Satan as a narrator at one point, uh, and King of Comedy. It's unclear like if there is that switch between, right, this is the boss over the loudspeaker, or if this is like a revolutionary song, um, or you know some figure of counterculture like calling us to action. On tongue, he lets his falsetto go the whole time which is not something that he does much at all, if ever. I don't know that there's another song where he just stays in there. I was really surprised by that when when I was listening to it again. That one, I like had not listened to this whole album in one sitting before, and, and that was like a that was sort of a shocker for me, especially after like so much of the album was the antithesis of that. That was a very different moment. It's a very beautiful and kind of airy moment in the middle of all this. Um, Industrial, not in the sense of the genre, but just in the like metallic and um, crunchy sound of it all. Uh, it's kind of this airy moment. There's a great organ line and solo in there. Um, but he, he just sits in his falsetto, and it's a the, the narrator there is a woman scorned, and like it's just this really cool and different take, especially within the context of Monster itself. Um, this is also around the time, another connection to the Smiths here, um, Stipe comes out as bisexual at this point, I think. Um, so, you know, with that in mind, you can dig into a lot of the lyrics and think about sexuality and <clears throat> his wrestling with his own identity. Um, so that's definitely present through a lot of the thing. Um, but I think that makes Tongue even more interesting in a way. Um, oh, I want to mention Circus Envy as well, which... In my notes, I wrote just straight crunches, and I think that's the best uh, description of it. It sounds like a helmet song, which, I don't know, I don't think of R.E.M. and Helmet in the same breath, but I think that that song is another great illustration of R.E.M. brought their guitars back. They got rid of the other stuff that they were experimenting with. This is not the, um, the dark twilight ruminating of automatic for the people uh, it's not the like church room meditation of out of time um with those honestly a lot of the time like very airy and twinkly strings um in a very gorgeous way um this is an album that is reconnecting them with what they started with but it's not a back to basics thing like this is one where they're taking on forms of rock that they hadn't really played with before um, this is an album that is grinding, uh, it is <clears throat> bleeding, it blares, it crunches, its guitars kind of stretch to what sounds they can make and what sounds they can invoke. And I think it's a great example of R.E.M. Again, th this is not like the, okay, we went into the woods and we made a folk album now. This is not the, okay, let us try our hand at... Um, <clears throat> 
you know, arena hair rock now. This is not the straight up back to basics, like let's recreate life's rich pageant. Um, this is, we're REM. Um, we play with all these different tools and we want to create different sounds at this point. And Monster is going to be our take on garage rock to some degree, grunge. Like this comes out in 1994, so that's definitely in their minds, I think. Um, and glam rock to some degree as well. This is, okay, we're fam We're super famous after Automatic for the People. Um, what do we make of that? And I think in a lot of the the narrations and just the music being made, uh, it's not that they're rejecting that, but it's also not that they're embracing it, that they're still being them and writing albums that really only they can. Like it, it's hard to think of other bands that feel so familiar and yet can be so different with the same elements from album to album. Um, <clears throat> it's pretty much three, four dudes just writing all of this. And yet each album has its own identity and but you could mix singles from a bunch of them and it would feel cohesive as an REM statement. And so to me, that's what makes them so vital um, that there aren't other bands that can be that consistent yet that innovative with their own tools and their own sounds. Um, and monster, I think is a great misunderstood example of this, that it's heavier than any other REM album. Um, you get moments of it from other songs like orange crush on green is a good example, um, <clears throat> which is about, the use of Agent Orange in, in Vietnam. Um, and that's another thing, too, I want to mention. Like, there's an old joke band, Corky and the Juice Pigs, that do the kind of stereotypical REM song. And it's the lilting musicality of Automatic for the People and then just a hyperbolic imitation of Stipe. And right, that works because they do sound like them. Like, we know what that's meant to be a parody of immediately. But as I've said, musically, this is a band that keeps shape-shifting. But I, I, really what I wanted to do here was give some shine to Stipe's writing, um, that he's often taking on very complex and important issues, whether that's military-industrial complex, whether that's consumption, um, whether that's sexuality and gender rights, um, or even when he's getting into his more meta songs, something like... Uh, Star 69 to some degree, which even gets to, into the notion of kind of ravaged minds and the effect of, of media um, on conspiracy thinking, or just like a straight up meta reflection of pop song 89, which is basically like, here's the pop song we have to write to get famous and like this will play on the radio and like it, it sounds like those and it's making fun of those at the same time. The reason REM won't get back together, I think, is they just feel done. Um, they had, by all accounts, a very amicable breakup in 2013, I think it was, 2012 maybe. And they've just gone their separate ways, they're doing their own things, and they just they seem at peace. And I say good for them. Um, they released a bunch of music in their 30-year career. They gave us a ton of fine albums. And I just don't see it happening. I don't, I don't think they need the money. I don't think they want the attention really anymore. They just seem done. So that's different from what we have going on with the Smiths and the Talking Heads, certainly, who are uh, 
basically broken beyond healing at this point, I think. Um, REM, by all accounts, could get back together and like enjoy themselves and write stuff. And maybe they do for fun, but I don't think they... I just don't think they care to tour again. I don't think they want to write a new album. I think they're good with where they're at. And to me, that's kind of exciting to see. Like, it's nice that a band can just end like that on their own terms. Um, so that's just a bit about why I don't think they'll get back together. But Monster, I submit as, again, this is an album of R.E.M. taking similar tools and techniques and just building something completely new within the scope of all their albums. Um, and this is part of an incredible run of, like, ten consecutive albums that are all great and can teach you a lot about R.E.M. Um so I think there just aren't other bands that really sound like themselves all the time, and yet on each album can keep updating, can keep finding something new, can keep shifting um, what we know of them that exists and just casting it in a new light. And as different as Monster is from pretty much everything else they've done, I think it feels just as important and as essential to the band. So talked about three bands that are never going to reunite, never going to play that farewell tour, never going to write more music. Um, and feel free to throw this episode at me if any of them do, because I will be happy to see any of them again. Uh, but it started off with The Smiths and The Queen Is Dead, which other people have said much about. There's not a, a bunch I need to add besides it's good, and it can teach you a lot about The Smiths, and it shows a lot of why they were great. Um, but Tim, to you, we have Talking Heads, Little Creatures, and R.E.M.'s Monster, both of which I have tried to show why they're illustrations of why these bands are vital and important to so many people, and um, still great bands that, that have a lot to tell us and teach us, and that still feel fresh after all these years. Uh, and I will add, potentially the two greatest American rock bands ever, but go ahead, Tim. Okay, so I went into this knowing it would be an uphill battle for Monster because Little Creatures is an album I just enjoy that much more. And as I have listened to this, I have I have zenned away, I have peeled away this this extra level of, of fandom, I suppose. And I have tried to, to think about it just in those terms. And I have to say I'm I'm still I think it's very original to look at R.E.M. for this kind of thing and say they're not going to have a reunion because they did everything they wanted to and there's like a level of satisfaction to that that I think is interesting and and which I, I enjoy the idea of. And at the same time, there is something that is just kind of more compelling to me about this album where you, you see the... you can see the, the strains a little bit if you know where to look um, and see the way that Talking Heads were kind of on the ropes for, for this album anyway. So I have to go with Little Creatures here. To me, that seems like the, the more apt answer. I tried. No, I, I like both albums. I, uh, I kind of knew that Monster was about to have an uphill battle. Um, it is very different, though. Like, R.E.M. still has... I don't know, offhand, five, six more albums after Monster that they're going to release. Talking Heads have two after Little Creatures, but they've essentially stopped touring. So 
like that that's a band definitely on the ropes as you said and like you can see the fissures you can see the cracks in the system but they can still come together and you get those moments you get those events of yeah this is what makes them so essential um and i think right right that does make the narrative different where rem it's like we're gonna show you why we're some of the best innovators in music um on every album we're gonna give you something new and familiar at the same time we're gonna take all the elements we've worked with before and make them new but they are a band that got to end pretty much on their own terms. Like, they shocked everyone when they announced that they were breaking up. There wasn't really indication that they were going to. And not that, like, they didn't have the strifes that any band has over their career, especially if you have a 30-year career. Like, there were fights, there were there were squabbles, um, but they got to end when they were ready, and they still had a lot more music in them after Monster. So, narratively, like, it's, it's different situations, but I do think both albums illustrate... Um, reasons why we want both of them back so much that there are just things that they can do that few if any other acts out there are able to in the same way Um, and two albums that feel different within the overall discographies but still hit on and I think this is important like no matter how different they sound or what they're trying to take on um, that both little creatures and monsters give us a sense of this is why these are great artists. Um, this is why they're so important to me. This is why it would be great to have them back. Um, but that said, I'm happy to see Little Creatures go through. It's a great album. Now everyone go watch Stop Making Sense before it goes away. I know, so quick. You have so little time. <laughs> so yeah, just to recap, I we talked about The Smiths, which is number five on the spin list. Talked about The Queen is Dead, why it's deservedly renowned. Um, and the interesting relationship that is Morrissey and Marr and how they complement and supplement each other. Uh, and then looked at two bands that, as much as we want and would love, are just not going to reunite and not going to give us that tour in the Talking Heads and R.E.M. And Tim has chosen Talking Heads' 1985 album Little Creatures as the uh, subtitle for the category Reunion. No. So stay with us. Check out episode two, where Tim will introduce us to Do the Right Thing. And we'll talk about his subtitles for that famous Spike Lee joint.